following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Mm. I, um, I want to, before we turn to the Bible this morning, I want to spend um, some time in prayer um, for the situation in the Ukraine. Um, just as a reminder that there is more that we could do um, as a church than to change our Facebook profiles to a Ukrainian flag um, or to to pour out our Russian vodka. There's more that we can do, uh, and that is to pray. Pray for the church and pray for the lost in both Ukraine and in Russia, to pray for the leaders of those nations and the people that are making the decisions that have resulted in this situation and all those people um, in, in positions of power uh, that are affecting this, whether it's Ukraine or Russia, whether it's Vladimir Zelensky or um, Vladimir Putin or Joe Biden, whoever it is that's making the decision, they need our prayer because they need the hand of God to work on them. So let's let's do that. Let's spend some time in prayer. Father, we are <clears throat> uh, I don't even know the words, Lord. Um, to think about the situation in Ukraine, um, ordinary citizens taking up arms to defend their homes. Um, Father, we pray uh, that your hand would be at work in the midst of this struggle. We know, Lord, that you are sovereign over this situation. Father, we pray um, for the church in Ukraine and in Russia and in Belarus and in Crimea and in Poland and the other countries surrounding. Lord, I pray that revival would begin as a result of this conflict. I pray, Lord, that your people would pull together stronger than ever, that your spirit would be at work among them, that your name would be glorified in the midst of this horror. Father, we pray for those who are in leadership. The Bible tells us that they have been appointed by your hand. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would intervene in their decision-making processes. We pray for Vladimir Putin. That your Holy Spirit would soften his heart. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work on his mind and the decisions that he is making that's causing so much death and destruction. Lord, I pray that you would save him by the power of the gospel, that he would come to faith in Jesus Christ and see that this conflict is not good. Lord, we pray for President Zelensky, that your spirit would be at work on his heart, giving him strength, but most of all, that he would come to know you. Lord, we know he's a, a child of Abraham, but we pray, Lord, he would be a spiritual child of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, 
that you would protect he and his family and the people of Ukraine. Lord, we thank you that your church is alive and well in Ukraine. Your church is alive and well in Russia and in Belarus and in Crimea. Lord, I pray that you would hear the prayers of your people, that there would be an end to this conflict, that no one else would have to suffer and die for whatever the point is of this of this war. We pray, God, that you would be sovereign. We know you already are, Lord. We trust you. I pray that our hearts would continue to break for these people, that we would continue to lift them up in prayer, that we would do more than just wave a flag um, or protest against Russia. Lord, I pray that you would remind us every time we see one of those symbols or somebody doing one of those things or saying anything about it to stop and to pray, to glorify your name. We do pray for peace on earth, goodwill to men. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word now, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, that we would uh, hear your voice speaking through your word, preserved through the ages for us to read in our own language freely, to worship you, to know you, to grow to be like you. We pray that you would use this time now for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at a passage starting at uh, verse 46, and that's page 856 in the Pew Bibles, if that's helpful to you. Uh, If you were with us last week, um, we're picking up right where we left off with Mary and Elizabeth in the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth in the hill country of Judah. Uh, If you remember from last week, or perhaps you've read this story before. Um, After the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and announced the good news uh, to her that she would bear a son by the Holy Spirit, even though she was a virgin, she left uh, Nazareth where she was and went to see her relative Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist. And when Mary arrived and says, Yo, here I am. The baby in Elizabeth's belly jumped for joy. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke a wonderful blessing um, to Mary. And then we pick up here in our text this morning at verse 46 with Mary's response. So Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. 
May the Lord bless his word and bless us through it today. So, the Catholic Church makes much of Mary. Too much, in fact. Yet, in that, they completely ignore Mary's own thoughts about herself um, and God's work in and through her in this passage. And there's a lot that we can learn through Mary's song here in Luke 1. You may have heard, um, you may have heard of this song of Mary, uh, called the Magnificat. Anybody else ever heard that expression? Okay. I'm not the only one. Thank you. Um, so, uh, the Pew Bibles actually, you'll see that it's labeled Mary's song, the Magnificat. Well, um, that's fun if you speak Latin, uh, because Magnificat is, just a Latin word, and it's the in the Latin Vulgate, uh, that is the first word of the song, and that's the mag- magnifies. You can kind of see it there. Um, that's what it's translated to in English. I really don't know why the ESV Bible has the heading, the Magnificat, other than just to tie some threads together for those who are familiar with that tradition. Um the other curiosity we have here is that this is a song, even though the text doesn't say, and Mary sang. It says, and Mary said. Well, the scholars believe that this is a song based on the original language. In English, not a lot of rhyme and meter, can't dance to it. Um, but uh, this wasn't written in English originally. This was written in Greek. Um, so based on the original languages, meter, and potential rhyming, um, the scholars believe that this was a song. And just um, just as a point of interest, anytime you see a section printed out in this way, if you look at that passage uh, in the Bible, uh, it's not um, it's not justified. It's I don't know the oh, the typesetting word for that. All right, look at it. There's indentations there, right? It looks different than the rest of the text. So anytime you see that, it's because the the translators and the scholars believe that it was a song. Um, You're welcome. There you go. You can carry that around with you for the rest of your days. Um, I'm going to treat it as a song. Uh, I'm not going to sing it for you, thankfully. Um, And I don't speak Latin, so I don't know the, the Magnificat, the way that was sung, but... If any of you do, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Hmm. Crickets. You have heard it sung in English? Cool. Well, great. Um, so Mary's song has... <laughs> I don't care. All right, so uh, nobody else says either, so we're going to move on. Mary's song here has three verses, um, all praising the mindfulness and the might and the mercy of God. And even though those are three M's, that's not the three points of my sermon. You're welcome. Uh, each verse, Mary focuses on a different group of people and uh, three groups of people that have experienced those attributes, those attributes of God, the mindfulness and might and mercy. And the three groups are herself, the faithful and the nation of Israel. And those two uh, last two are different. One is a subset of the other. Okay, the faithful among the people of Israel. 
Um, so let's look at the three verses of Mary's song. The first, I know it doesn't, uh, it's not split up this way um, as it's written out, but thematically it certainly is. The first, um, the first verse is in verses 46 through 49a, the first half of verse 49. And Mary sings of God's mindfulness, might, and mercy on herself. Verse 46 says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Uh, The English language is always evolving. And that can get really annoying when you're trying to translate the Bible from a language with set rules that don't change um, into the messy form of always changing, hard to pin down gobbledygook that we speak. Um, There, there, and there. Okay? So just as an example. And we make... um, we make nouns into verbs and adjectives all the time uh, because I was adulting this morning as I was taking out the trash, right? It just, English is, anyway. Um, <clears throat> so in English, we often read the words in the Bible, soul, spirit, and mind, and kind of lump them together uh, in the same category and assign them all the same Meaning, as if the author was just trying to express the same thought in in multiple different ways just for emphasis. Um, and when we do that, we are wrong. Um, when we do that, we miss out on some of the richness and depth of meaning that is expressed. And it's really just because we're lazy, honestly. And then we have to, the nerve to say that reading the Bible is boring. Uh, because we just make everything into alphabet soup. But when Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, she doesn't mean her heart magnifies the Lord or her spirit magnifies the Lord or her mind magnifies the Lord. She means her soul, the very depth and center of her emotions. It's as if she is saying, my very emotions, my feelings praise the greatness of the Lord. Right. She's deliberate in what she's saying. And then she sings, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. She doesn't mean my soul rejoices in God, my savior or my mind, my spirit. If the soul encompasses how we feel, the spirit, as Mary uses it, is how we think. All of my thoughts experience great joy and gladness because of God, my deliverer, the source of my eternal salvation. Mary's not throwing away words here just to be poetic, right? Um, Mary was expressing the great commandment. It's found originally in Deuteronomy 6, 5, and later Jesus quoted it. Uh, it's written in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Mary was expressing her love for the Lord, her God, with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I typically typically tend to read that 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just, you're, you're everything. Well, there are different words used, and they are different words used for a reason. So here is another example of that. Mary is expressing her worship for the Lord in how she feels and also how she thinks. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who has mighty, he who is mighty, has done great things for me. Now you'll notice that Mary doesn't say a word about what she has done to deserve the honor that was hers. She only praises the work of God the Father. He who has done who has mighty has done great things for me because I'm wicked special. Right? It's she's only praising the work of God the Father. She points out her humble estate. Again, this is a a difficult phrase. She's not saying, look at how humble I am, because that's a contradiction, right? Like the plaque that you hang in your study that says you're the humblest, right? And Mary is, is, is not saying I, my estate is humble, my, my, my life and my place in, in life is humble, it's low. She's, she's not just saying, look at how humble I am, but my, my level in the, in the caste system of life is at the bottom. And it was. She's a, this is a poor teenage girl from nowhere. Right? She didn't live in Jerusalem. Her father wasn't related to the uncle's brother's, you know, the governor. She's nobody from nowhere. And in, when she points out her humble estate, she contrasts her lowness to God's excellence. She contrasts her unworthiness to God's grace. Anytime we fool ourselves into thinking we are the least bit worthy of God's blessing on us, we throw mud on the grace of God. We deserve worse than nothing. We deserve destruction. And Mary understood that. And I think it's important here at this point to point out the difference between mercy and grace. Again, because English is alphabet soup, we throw these words together and think they mean the same thing. And they don't. They really, really don't. We use these words interchangeably mostly because we need our songs to rhyme. They don't mean the same thing. So the simple way to understand it, I've said, I've said this before. Grace is getting something that we do not deserve. Right? We do not deserve God's love. We do not deserve forgiveness because we are sinners and we have fallen short of the glory of God. But by his grace, he loves us enough to send his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin. That's grace. Getting what we don't deserve. 
Mercy, on the other hand, is not getting what we do deserve. Okay? We deserve God's wrath because of our sin. We deserve to be destroyed. Not just put in time out. I mean, obliterated. That's what we deserve because of our sin. In his mercy, God withholds his wrath until the judgment so that people can come to faith in Jesus Christ by his grace. So by calling herself low, Mary is displaying God's grace. She doesn't deserve the honor that is bestowed on her. And this isn't false humility. This is honesty. This isn't self-deprecation in order to get people to praise her. Oh, I'm so, oh, I'm so terrible. Oh, no, you're not. You know, this is my favorite game. I'm so dumb. Oh, you're so, you're so much smarter than me. That's not what Mary is doing. It's my favorite thing. I don't think that's what Mary's doing at all. She's being honest about her low estate. And in his mercy, God doesn't exercise his wrath. Instead, he exercises his blessing, a mercy that will be remembered forever as people will forever call Mary blessed because of the role God put her in. Verse 49a ends the first verse of Mary's song, praising the Lord in his grace and power for doing great things for her. And the word translated great, again, this is fun. The word that's translated great is, is more fun than that. It's, it's more accurately surprising. It's, God has done surprising things for me. Now, if, if you can just Imagine yourself in Mary's shoes just for a minute. I think surprising is a pretty accurate word uh, to describe what the Lord had done um, in and through Mary and was doing at the time. I'm sure Mary was surprised at what the Lord was doing. And how often are we surprised when God does exactly what he says he will do? Don't you love that? All right, so on to verse 2. Look at, this is confusing, verse 49b, the second half of verse 49. This starts the second verse of Mary's song, where she celebrates the power and judgments and mercy of God in more general terms. She moves on from God's work in herself to God's work on uh, or for the faithful, <clears throat> those who believe in the Lord. Uh, again, this is a separate group from the people of Israel, um, because just because you are a child of Abraham by blood, there's a difference between that and being a child of Abraham by faith. And so within the nation of Israel, those were, these are the people that were faithful to the Lord, looking forward to Messiah, that weren't just, I'm a, I'm Jewish by race, but Jewish by faith along with my race. Okay. So, anyway, <clears throat> verse 2 starts with an and, which is improper English, but she's talking about somebody else. And holy is his name. 
and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Holy is his name. It is an unfortunate tragedy that the name of the Lord has been brought down so low in our day, at least in the thinking of people. The name of our Savior Jesus Christ gets used as a curse word. And calling on the name of God gets thrown around like garbage. God's name is holy. His name is entitled to the highest reverence because God is entitled to the highest reverence. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy is perpetual. It is never ending, is what she's saying here. John Calvin said, I love, I love this quote. He will always be like himself. God is never changing, never failing. Always merciful to those who fear him. But what does it mean to fear God? This is, again, another often misunderstood expression. This is not the fear that's associated with terror or fright. This is profound reverence and awe and respect. This is the basis of godliness and religion, and it finds its basis in faith. You can't fear God if you don't believe in him. You have no fear if you do not trust him. His mercy is perpetual for those who have faith in him. His mercy, not getting what we do deserve, also known as eternal destruction, is reserved for those by God's grace fear him. His mercy is reserved for those who fear him. This isn't a result of nationality or birthright, as is the belief of some, but this is on the basis of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 51 says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. God the Father has performed miracles by his own power. That's what Mary means when she says um, he's showed the strength of his arm. He didn't win an arm wrestling contest. Uh, this is just uh, uh, an expression that God has performed miracles specifically in and through and on behalf of the lowly, contrary to the estimation of the proud and the mighty and the rich. You've got to remember the culture that Mary's in is different than ours, but I don't think this idea is gone in that the powerful and the rich and the mighty, they're the ones that make things happen. They're the ones that God has blessed the most, right? 
Um, and I think that that's a popular idea because we have no real concept of what God's blessing really looks like. Because money and power, influence, uh, not necessarily God's blessing. I think, turn on the TV when you get home. You'll see money, power, influence, not necessarily a blessing. There are people with money and power and influence that are destroying the lives of others. Okay? God's blessing is different than that. we got to get that idea out of our minds that if, if God really loves us, he will help us get ahead. Right? He'll make sure all my bills are paid on time and I have no no problems at all. That's how I know God's blessing me. Everything is going according to plan. Well, regardless of how you feel, everything is going according to plan, whether you like it or not. God the Father has performed miracles by his own power. See, God's kingdom, it's been said, is an upside-down kingdom. Though Jesus is God, he gave us the ultimate example. He humbled himself, made himself a servant. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. No bed, no pillow, no palace. Why is it that that's what we want? That's not the example that has been set for us. We want all our troubles to go away. Jesus said, it's going to be exactly the opposite. We want everybody to be united. Jesus said, it's going to be exactly the opposite. And when it comes to those uh, who have God's blessing, according to the world standard, that's not who Jesus chose to follow him. He chose fishermen, tax collectors, persecutors. That's who he chose to be his disciples. And through them, he changed the world. The world system exalts the powerful and the privileged and the proud, the mighty and the rich. But God's system is not regulated by man's standards. I wish that we would just get off that. Calvin wrote, The great and the rich and the powerful, lifted up by their abundance, ascribe all the praise to themselves and leave nothing to God. We ought therefore to be scrupulously on our guard against being carried away by prosperity and against a vain satisfaction of the flesh lest God suddenly deprive us of what we enjoy. We are always in danger of that because we have it better than two-thirds of the world. You go home to a place, uh, a warm place to sleep tonight with food in the cupboards, you have more material blessings than two-thirds of the world. Don't forget that. Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, speaking of this upside-down kingdom idea, Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. No kidding. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Mary's final verse praises the Father for his faithfulness to his promise to Israel. Verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. In his mercy, God preserved Israel just as he promised. Mary is referencing God's promise to Abraham from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Open your Bibles to that and underline these verses. It's not sacrilegious to, to write in your Bible. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. I'll wait until I stop. I don't hear the pages flipping. This is a very, very, very important passage. And again, as we've been reminded over the last few weeks, the Old and New Testament are not two separate books. The page that you have in the middle, again, not to sound sacrilegious, but the blank page between Malachi and Matthew, you should just tear that out. It's not two books. It's one. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, that's Abraham, before God changes his name. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's covenant with Abraham. How could God possibly bless all the families of the earth through him? Well, if you do a little genealogical research, you'll find the seed of Abraham is Jesus. That's what God is talking about. He's going to bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, through Jesus. That's why these verses are so important for us to remember. In remembrance of his mercy, God helped his servant Israel. That's what Mary said. And the word translated helped means to provide what is needed. And what is it that Israel needed? A Savior. And God provided it himself. He supplied his only begotten son, Jesus. And that same Savior who was sent by God to help Israel was also sent for us. That whomever would believe in him would not perish in a nursery accident. Would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's God's promise. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. 
and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word this morning. May it take root in our hearts. May we cling to your mercy and magnify you and your grace. Help us, Lord, to think rightly about ourselves, to have a correct estimation of who we are and how much we don't deserve your love so that we can appreciate how great your grace really is. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in the sound of my voice who has not accepted Jesus as their Savior, accepted your great gift of grace, that even now they would call out to you in faith, ask for your forgiveness, and put their trust in Jesus for the direction of their lives from now until he comes. May we all continuously renew that commitment in our own hearts and minds. How we think and how we feel. May it revolve around Jesus. May it bring glory to your name. We love you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.